joined today on the podcast by a very special guest, Akhil Ramesh, resident research fellow at Pacific Forum International, where he conducts research on supply chains, economic security issues, and broader challenges in the U.S. relationship with countries in the Indo-Pacific, with a particular focus on the U.S.-India relationship. He previously worked with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, examining geoeconomic issues in the Indo-Pacific region. Prior to that, based out of New York City as a project lead, he led the East-West Institute's database and mapping project of China's Belt and Road Initiative. His commentary can be found in Nikkei Asia, South China Morning Post, The Hill, The National Interest, to name a few. He holds a master's degree in global macroeconomics from New York University, New York. Akhil is spearheading a new Indo-Pacific initiative, a first-of-its-kind partnership between the Hindu American Foundation and Pacific Forum International looking at U.S.-India relations. Welcome, Akhil. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Samir, for the kind introduction. Uh, it's great to be here. So to get us started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the Pacific Forum and then a little bit about this new U.S.-India initiative. Sure. Uh, Pacific Forum is a think tank based out of Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, founded in 1975. Traditionally, we focused on conventional security. And over the years, as the security landscape changed, uh, we shifted our focus to address different challenges. And uh, off late, we've been focusing on the economic security and uh, supply chain related security threats, in particular, the Indo-Pacific region, because we feel that that is the future and that is where the imminent threats are. So our think tank, based uh, on Honolulu, has unique perspectives. Unlike the think tanks in Washington, uh, we, we are not bogged down by groupthink. We are unique in our perspective uh, with regards to analyzing the Indo-Pacific, and we are open to new ideas, such as our new initiative with U.S.-India relationship. Great. And Pacific Forum has traditionally focused more on East Asia. So this is a little bit of a, a recent departure from the traditional work of the think tank, um, but I would say a much needed one as a lot of the focus of our uh, foreign policy here in the U.S. is shifting to that region. And there's been a kind of a distinct uh, move uh, to focus more as an Indo-Pacific. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is so important and why that's so necessary today? So I would say it all started with uh, the Asia-Pacific Command turning into Indo-Pacific Command uh, in Hawaii. Uh, so the Pacific Command became Indo-Pacific, actually, sorry. Uh, and uh, all programs in the U.S. were shifting from Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific because um, the U.S. intelligence, the U.S. political uh, system, uh, the paradise felt that uh, the reach needs to be into the Indian Ocean, that the U.S. cannot be limiting itself to the Pacific. So if you want to have Indo and the Indo-Pacific, you need to have an outreach with India. So hence the India program. So we were traditionally an East Asia focused think tank, but uh, since we wanted to do an Indo-Pacific program, uh, we brought in more India related programmatic work. Great. And can you talk a little bit about what that programmatic work covers and what's been done so far in that uh, area? Sure. Uh, so the India-related programmatic work is done primarily by uh, Robert York, who's the Director for Regional Affairs, and I, other research fellow. Uh, and we've authored several articles in uh, public-faced media in India and in the U.S. And uh, we've also co-authored reports. For instance, I worked on a report on uh, diversifying supply chains from China and moving them into India. Uh, and, of course, the HAF uh, Pacific Forum Initiative is one of our uh, you know, flagship projects on bringing in more India and U.S. perspectives and the bilateral relationship. 
Great. And I think, um, you know, you had a, an excellent start to that um, initiative with a your first, I think, out of three journal articles um, entitled U.S.-India Relations, Cold War, Cold War Era Differences in Indo-Pacific Synergies. Um, you know, that kind of has touched on the gamut of U.S.-India relations. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of attention focused on you know, more of issues related to human rights and democracy and kind of regional issues. Can you tell us a little bit about why this initiative is different than the typical South Asia analysis um, and why it's important to have a broader approach uh, to U.S.-India relations? I think this is part of a bigger problem, actually. Um, Historically, India chose non-alignment. And uh, while there were many advantages to that for India, the major disadvantage was that uh, if you're not a treaty ally or if you're not a strategic ally, uh, you don't gain certain privileges in American media nor in the think tank circle, like Pakistan did, for instance. Um, so there was always this uh, false moral equivalency drawn between Pakistan and India in all South Asia programs. So to correct the historical error, we had to you know, recalibrate the approach, uh, make a radical shift from human rights and security or Afghanistan, Taliban, Pakistan, India approach, westward looking approach to more of a look east approach. So the Modi administration in India has focused its efforts on looking east and acting east. And uh, we thought uh, we need to capitalize on that and also we need to look east as well because the Pacific is the future and uh, the Middle East, Afghanistan was the past. So the pressing challenges of today are the east and uh, we need to look uh, at India through that prism. Why do you think the traditional think tank analysis, I mean, you talked about how the genesis of it started, um, but why do you think the traditional think tank world is still so beholden to this idea of a South Asia um, center or South Asia analysis. Why is it, why can't it move past it and kind of move forward and looking at the way you are at Pacific Forum, looking at India as part of the Indo-Pacific region, as opposed to this traditional South Asia kind of security, um, uh, security region that's tied to Afghanistan and Pakistan? Well, there are a couple of things there. One, Pakistan remains to be its non-NATO strategic ally. Uh, that has not changed. Um, unless that relationship changes, you won't see a major shift from South Asia to India. Uh, so, and the second thing is, uh, Americans like to make it easier for geographical analysis. East Asia covers all the, all countries in East Asia from China to Japan, whether it's allies or adversaries. Uh, so similarly, South Asia would cover all the countries without making it complex for them to cover different countries. And third, um, I think they've used the same, um, paradigm offered to them by the British after they left India. Uh, so their idea of South Asia was India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, part of that subcontinent. Uh, and their analysis has always been that way. If you notice, think tanks out of France or of Germany or Japan, their view of the region is quite different. Uh, they see India for what it is, for its own merit, than seeing it as South Asia, the bigger issue. So I think that uh, if I may say the Anglo-Saxon perspective uh, has been uh, that it's South Asia and that we need to balance India with Pakistan. Um, Since the Cold War years, it has been using China and Pakistan to balance India. So that idea is still prevalent in Washington and in London. And uh, while it is changing, um, I think it's uh, deep rot in the system. So it's going to take a lot more time to fix that. 
So interestingly, um, you mentioned the Anglo-Saxon perspective and, of course, through in London there. So is there any tie-in perhaps that can be drawn to the prior colonial presence in India and uh, control of India by the British and how that even is still having carryover effects? I know we talked about the Cold War hangover, but maybe is there something to do with uh, what happened during the colonial era and still uh, some influence of that today and how the region is looked at by these Anglo-Saxon countries, so to speak? I mean, definitely. I mean, uh, you see that even in uh, the current elections in the Conservative Party in UK, uh, there was recently a post by a conservative on um, posting a photo of Rishi Sunak's wedding, uh, saying that this is not English culture uh, because uh, he was found with uh, in a traditional Hindu wedding attire. Um, so there's always this uh, idea of you need to fit in. Uh, you need to fit into the Anglo-Saxon culture. If you don't wear a suit and tie, if you're not clean shaven, you're not part of the team. They like club of uh, Anglo-Saxon countries, the Commonwealth. So that idea of not fitting in has always persisted. And uh, the issue is even more profound in governments, just the Modi governments, the one that is trying to, you know, assert its identity. Uh, the one who, the leader who's a vegetarian, who has this chai sip in a piping hot and uh, who's from humble backgrounds, who was not, you know, who, who did not attend Oxford or Cambridge, like the usual leaders in India. So that idea of India, uh, the common man's India, it challenges uh, British idea of India, which is basically uh, our colony. And uh, the leader of that colony is basically like a viceroy. Uh, so to change that idea, you know, it clashes with the nationalism in India and, uh, hence they double down on their analysis, both the, the Anglo-Saxon, uh, club, I would say, uh, to say that that is not something right just because it doesn't fit with their definition of how a post-colonial society should be. So definitely, uh, I think they still have that uh, colonial hangover more than the colonies themselves. The former colonizers have that. Interesting. And you would think that based on that, it would be more of the conservative analysts or the conservative commentators that would be having or people on the far right that would be having that view of India, but and, and Hindus uh, more specifically as well. But it seems like that we're seeing that on the far left as well. And it's creating a kind of a neoliberalism, as you call it. Can you talk a little bit further on uh, about that and how that is uh, influencing the analysis of India um, and Hindus um, particularly? So neoliberalism uh, is a particular challenge. Over the past 20 years, we saw how that went in Afghanistan um, and the populist rice, I mean, was a product of that. Uh, so neoliberalism has this idea that uh, countries in the global south need the West help. They need the help to be uplifted and they need to be saved. Uh, some countries are not fan of this idea. They believe that uh, we don't need your saving. Uh, we are strong by ourselves, such as India. Uh, and the BRICS countries, by and large, assert that. China does it in different ways. Uh, Brazil does it in different ways. Russia, South Africa do it in different ways. In India's case, it's, it's particularly it's um, virulent because of its culture and religion. Uh, Abrahamic faiths have always tried to pose their uh, set of ideas and values on Hinduism. Uh, their prism of how they view religion on Hinduism, for instance, it still baffles a lot of uh, uh, Abrahamic thinkers that, uh, you know, Hinduism is polytheistic. We have multiple gods. We don't just have one God. Um, and uh, so that idea of uh, culture and religion uh, itself uh, is a problem. And then in the, le the left, in particular in the U.S., 
uh, people have gone to the far left. Uh, there was a center, good center back in the 90s, early 2000s, but you don't have that anymore in the U.S., in academia, in the think tanks. You have this uh, far left that uh, is in love with Marxism. Um, they are trying to revive the Cold War in that way. I mean, you see that even with the Taiwan uh, crisis, with uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of House's uh, visit to Taiwan, uh, there are many who are criticizing the U.S. for just making a trip out there uh, and justifying China's threats. So you come to a state where um, the Marxist left in the U.S. Uh, supports uh, China, supports uh, radical Islamists, and does not uh, side with you know the people as they claim to be. Uh, so that, that is a double whammy for the Hindu, for Hindus and the Indian community. Um, they have to face the far left and the far right. You get canceled if you're going to speak something about uh, nationalism in India. Not exactly critical of it, but more of an objective analysis. If you were to give a speech at a university, say even in California, uh, there'll be protests outside. Uh, and if you want to talk about liberalism, you'd have the far right uh, coming at you saying you're a colony. You need to first you know, clean yourself up or one of those racist uh, tirades. So we have this uh, challenge from um, both sides. So it's uh, particularly hard for the Indian community, in particular the Hindu community, to get the message across. Because uh, unlike the Abrahamic faiths, uh, Hinduism is limited to one part of the world. You don't have that many numbers in the West uh, as say Christianity or Islam or other faiths have. So we need to double down on uh, educating people uh, on what Hinduism is, what our culture is, and uh, you know, change their mind that we're not just you know, coming from a land of snakes and cows and uh, all we do is uh, have uh, prayers and uh, you know, uh, saffron-clad monks. We are more than that. We have NASA scientists to doctors to, you know, we run the gamut. We're like just like any other community. Absolutely. Uh, not to digress a little bit too much down that road, but it's it's really fascinating that uh, Hinduism philosophically and spiritually has had such a big impact on the U.S. and the Western world through yoga, through uh, Ayurvedic medicines, through food, through culture, dance, music, you name it. And yet, they, there's always a tendency to separate that from Hinduism because there's this fear that, um, oh, well, we, we think of Hinduism in this one way and we can't, you know, we can't, uh, you know, it's, it's, it has to be remain in that little box and we can't deal with this idea that Hinduism is much larger than that, right? It can it exist at the same time as being polytheistic and also monistic, um, where there's just a larger divinity, um, and, uh, different deities are just representations of one ultimate Brahman. Um, and they can have such a deep spiritual impact. So I think, you know, this goes back into this caricature or this uh, need to kind of put Hinduism in a box, put India in a box. Um, but I guess in doing that, you know, there is a lot of nexuses, you could say, between you know, academics, media, um, uh, think tanks, but also activists, as you like to call it, champagne activists. Um, can you talk a little bit about more about these connections and how they all kind of push this agenda or push this view of India and how that impacts U.S.-India relations? Sure. Uh, I mean, you, you're right. Uh, we have yoga, we have other cultural exports uh, that do receive, um, that are, are well-received. 
But the issue is, uh, from the perspective, regardless of political uh, spectrum, I I would say that there is a lot of appropriation with uh, Hindu gods and Hindu cultures, and even with yoga. I mean, in the U.S., we have uh, beer yoga. I don't know what that is, getting drunk and doing (laughs) yoga poses. Um, So uh, I think the education needs to come from people who appreciate the culture and the religion, uh, and not just someone who likes it or who thinks it is fun to pursue it. Um, so we don't want beer yoga or any Hindu gods made into Halloween costumes. So we don't want appropriation like that. Uh, so I just want to put it out there that uh, welcoming culture, you know, needs to be welcome and respect. Uh, so with regards to the, the nexus, I think, uh, it's a bigger problem. I think, uh, this is where in the Venn diagram, where uh, conspiracy theorists, analysts, uh, and intelligence all are in one circle. Uh, because when you say that it's all a coordinated campaign, uh, people will often balk, uh, come on, it can't be a coordinated campaign. But uh, one needs to understand that uh, several campaigns like protest activism is funded by political interests. And these political interests can be state parties like a country, such as Pakistan or China. And they can also be big foundations who would like to see India democratized, uh, part of the you know, Cold War era project, um, and uh, change the government in India. I mean, one leader of a foundation was open about it. He said he will commit over a billion dollars to regime change in India to overthrow the Modi government. Um, so there are foundations like those uh, that spend money uh, with getting articles published in popular media. Uh, they have private conversations with editorial boards. Uh, to name a few, take the case of Imran Khan meeting with the editorial board, the former prime minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, meeting with the editorial board of New York Times. Uh, I, I'm not sure if they would take a meeting from Modi or from anyone else. Uh, I think uh, meetings like those are a problem. Uh, I understand you need to get different perspectives, but uh, a conservative, an American conservative, uh, like say Tom Cotton, uh, cannot have his article written in New York Times or Washington Post without him being canceled or his article being taken down. But the leader of Taliban or the Haqqani Network can have his op-ed published in one of those publications. So that is a problem. Uh, NPR, uh, the one that goes against India every time, calls us, uh, you know, the cow piss drinking people. Uh, and I say uh, here openly that that's the exact word she used, a former editor of, uh, producer of NPR in New Delhi. So NPR uh, had a, an, more like an obituary column for Fidel Castro, where uh, they were praising his work. At the same time, the first tweet that came out after Abe's assassination was, uh, you know, a divisive neoconservative uh, leader who wanted to change the idea of Japan. So I think there's this implicit bias. Uh, I think that's the word conservatives don't like to use, but uh, it is actually there uh, among liberals, ironically. uh, And uh, they need to work on that. Uh, And also this coordinated campaigns, uh, I think there needs to be more research into those things. Uh, sadly, uh, very few scholars have dug into the, these efforts. While there's a lot of research on campaign finance, on lobbying work, um, I mean, all countries do, all major corporations do, uh, lobbying and advocacy, but there isn't uh, much research into these coordinated campaigns. 
because this is very important and uh, you know time sensitive. Because if not every other election, you have an election coming up, and then uh, you have a coordinated campaign on one particular issue driving the narrative. So you don't want the media to be held hostage to these big foundations uh, that drive a nar- narrative. They can do good work uh, without driving their own narrative media and trying to cancel anyone who you know disagrees with them. And I think the point you made about um, you know foreign influence, I think, is definitely important to highlight because it wasn't too long ago that. Uh, uh, Gulam Nabi Fai uh, was arrested by the FBI for uh, illegally lobbying on behalf of the Pakistani government and intelligence agencies. And he wasn't the only one. Um, so the hand of foreign influence is obviously there. Um, it's, you know, impacting how policymakers and others view some of these complex issues on the ground um, in India. And of course, none of these um, issues are black and white. They are very gray. Um, but uh, I think they are pushed based on bias and agenda as opposed to kind of an objective analysis. And that's kind of where I want to take our conversation in terms of this need to bring back objective analysis um, into this relationship, into the U.S.-India relationship, because whatever we can say in terms of some of these, um, you know, these traditional views about India, the U.S.-India relationship is one of the most critical partnerships in the world and it will be going forward. Um, so if you can just talk maybe a little bit about, you know, how to bring back this objective analysis and maybe how this initiative um, that we're working on together and that you're spearheading at Pacific Forum is moving us in that further in that direction. Sure. Uh, I think it is timely and also the U.S. government is finally opening its eyes. I think Biden uh, put it, uh, you know, this wasn't a, I don't think it was a slip of a tongue, but he was quite clear when he said that the U.S.-India relationship is the most important for him. Uh, Unlike other bilateral relationships, this has a lot of potential because we're starting from rock bottom. Uh, While there's been trade, there's been security ties to an extent, uh, there hasn't been much friendship per se. There's always been this uh, uh, undercurrent of differences. Uh, I think to change that, uh, we need to spend time, money, and there needs to be a lot of effort into changing how India is perceived in the U.S. and vice versa, how the U.S. is perceived in India. So to address this trust difference, I think uh, think tanks such as Pacific Forum could be the place. Uh, We are a bipartisan uh, think tank. We don't take sides. We work with both uh, Democrats, Republicans, and we would work with anyone in government in India. But at the same time, it's U.S.-India relations. Whoever's in power, um, that relationship needs to take its right course. And from what we've seen, it's an upward trajectory. So to hit the gas pedal and not have hiccups such as the Ukraine-Russia crisis, uh, I, I, we, the Pacific Forum in particular is has this um, unique opportunity and also this geostrategic advantage to start off on a clean slate. Unlike Washington, we don't have the idea of India as a former colonial uh, empire, uh, colonial state, or as a Soviet Union's ally. So we don't have the Cold War baggage nor um, the colonial era baggage. So uh, I think that's that's what sets us apart. 
And you touched on there the Ukraine-Russia war, and that has been a, a recent impediment despite this upward trajectory. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that was viewed in policy circles and think tank circles? Um, obviously, India's position was uh, you know, not to get involved, really, um, and it had a lot of reasons for doing that. Maybe if you can touch on that a little bit, um, the reasons for India's um, uh, position and also how that was interpreted and um, how that played out here in, in Washington. So, so the Ukraine-Russia the crisis was, is a classic example of how, the, if you want to call them breaking India forces, so how they uh, collaborate and use the opportunity uh, to, to paint the picture that India is the villain on the world stage. Uh, they use that opportunity to say that uh, India is allied with Russia and Putin and Modi are buddies and um, both of them are authoritarians. To them, uh, they are the same, made of the same plot. So they just take advantage of the news. Uh, and uh, it's unfortunate that uh, India's uh, rebuttals, like the foreign affairs, external affairs ministers, uh, Jay Shankar's rebuttals, are used as fodder for those activists. Uh, they just argue that uh, they're just defending their stance and they're su- supporting or siding with Russia when India is actually staying out of the conflict, not taking a side. So uh, accusing someone of not who's not taking a side of taking a side um, is their way of saying that uh, whatever you do, we're going to paint you this way. So you have no uh, no recourse. So with people like those, with critiques like those, uh, it is quite hard to get the message across. And uh, India's non-alignment is a very tricky, complex uh, foreign policy. And to get such a complex, nuanced uh, foreign policy across to an audience that you know is not willing to listen, um, it's not worth anyone's time. Uh, you know, there's a saying where I come from, you can uh, wake up a person who's sleeping, but you can't wake up someone who's pretending to be asleep. Um, so uh, these uh, analysts, uh, they're pretending to be asleep. You can give them facts. You can show, you can throw data at them saying that the India-Russia trade relationship has been on downward trajectory. India is not buying any more arms and ammunition from Russia. We have diversified. We buy it from Israel, from France, from the U.S. Same goes for oil. Uh, it's, it's usually, it has always been the Middle East uh, and uh, the U.S. Uh, primarily. But uh, they will, you know, cherry pick data. They will look at the last few months of how India has been buying more from Russia to you know, paint a picture that uh, we have, India is buying more oil from Russia. So unless you, you know, go down that lane of cherry picking data, I think the, the relationship between India and U.S. is much more comprehensive than it ever was between, say, even the Soviet Union and, and India. So data should speak for itself. Uh, and uh, that's the only recourse we have with these uh, champagne activists and these analysts, uh, these quote-unquote South Asia analysts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, uh, we talked a little bit about Russia, and I think we've kind of moved past that in our U.S.-India relations in terms of that was a hiccup. Um, I kind of reached a peak in terms of the criticism of India, then that became toned down. Um, and I think we've kind of moved past that a little bit in terms of that being a real impediment. But do you see additional impediments or what do you see as potentially being impediments in the relationship going forward? So going forward uh, is going to be 
actually, I need to blame both countries here uh, because uh, India, the one thing that it has not given up since the Cold War days is not the Russia relationship, but uh, it's a form of license Raj. There's still this uh, regulatory cholesterol in India, even though Modi has, uh, you know, changed a lot of things, reformed the tax system, has brought in, has deregulated many industries, has, uh, you know, gone the privatization, privatization drive. There still exists this regulatory cholesterol uh, that is making it hard for investors and American businesses to operate out of India. So that is something that India needs to change. And uh, it needs to open up a little bit more. It is, it is still a shy kid in the last bench. It needs to open up. It needs to raise its hand more and come forward. Whether it's foreign policy, what Jay Shankar is doing, that's excellent. You need the same thing with trade policy. You need to trade more with Southeast Asia. You can't be an isolationist. So that's from India's standpoint. With regards to the U.S., uh, it, it needs to lose this idea that India is a Soviet Union ally or even a Russian ally. It is not even an ally anymore. So uh, it needs to lose the idea that it needs to be democratized. I mean, even recently when um, Samantha Power uh, thinks she's the administrator of USAID program, uh, when she was in India recently, um, she was talking about how the Indian democracy is a success. One would think, oh, wow, that's a change of heart. Okay. But then right after that, she said, um, India owes it to us. We are glad that our successful uh, democracy promoting project in India worked. Um, so, I mean, for ones who do not know history, uh, they would probably clap. They would probably say, yeah, uh, U.S. Uh, made a democracy. Uh but even if you have this idea of uh, India needed democracy building, um, I think uh, going to India and have, playing a cricket game like she did, and then uh, saying, you know, it's all because of us, uh, bragging about it, uh, sounds very colonial. Um, we helped you, you were very poor, here's the bread. Uh, that kind of idea of development or partnership, that needs to change. Uh, the U.S. needs to view India, you know, at its own merit, not see it as a former colony or as a satellite state. Um, they need to understand that India has its own soft power, uh, its own strong foreign policy, and it's had its own allies and partners around the globe. I think uh, the U.S. Uh, is beginning to view uh, India like a country in Southeast Asia or East Asia that were that survived or that thrived because of American assistance. Uh, but Americans need to understand that uh, India will not be one of those countries uh, just because uh, India is trying to assert its own identity. It does not want to be a Western country or an Asian country. It wants to be an Indian country and it wants to modernize, but not Westernize. Um, in some ways, uh, I'm not sure if many would agree with this, uh, uh, comparison, but uh, Modi is pulling off a Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, he wants to uh, have a proud India, at the same time more modernize and develop the growth to become a rich country, but uh, retain its uh, unique Hindu identity. Uh, something that Lee Kuan Yew was talking about, his you know, Asian uh, identity and how uh, it is unique for Singapore and that it will retain it.
It's a very similar message. And, you know, I've often actually heard some commentators in India referring to India as a civilizational state. And I think that goes along those lines that it, because it has a rich civilization, regardless of whether political borders have changed over time as they do anywhere and everywhere, constantly throughout history. But there's that very Indian Hindu civilization that underlies everything. And I think India is moving to in a, in a way that, as you mentioned, modernize, but also retain its civilizational ethos um, and perspective and everything that they do. Um, you know, we have a few minutes left and I want to come since many in our audience are in the diaspora itself um, and maybe take uh, a few minutes to talk a little bit about what role the diaspora can play and has played in furthering U.S.-India relations as um, as we go forward. I believe the diaspora could become collateral damage if they're not united. I see a lot of uh, a lot of conflict within the diaspora here. The U.S. Uh, they don't have a common message. Uh, they're divided on who to support, whether it's local politics or what is happening in India. Uh, they often fall prey, uh, they fall victim uh, to the messaging that comes from these uh, champion activists and these South Asia analysts. Um, I think uh, there needs to be a coordinated approach. Uh, they need to advocate for their own interests and for their brethren in India. Uh, but of course, first should be their own interests and their own interests should be, you know, understanding of their culture, economic development, and the policies that would uh, favor social cohesion, not split U.S. into different minorities, into different boroughs, not start um, civil strifes within the U.S. between different parts of India or from you know different communities, uh, because uh, we saw what's happening in the Bay Area uh, with activists trying to bring the discussion on caste uh, at the workplace. Uh, I think they're using the critical race theory approach to caste. And uh, interestingly, now the University of Chicago has a department uh, for critical caste theory analysis. Um, so initiative uh, like these trying to impose uh, something that is unique to the US like critical race theory analysis on India is the problem. I think the French identified well. Uh, they said Americans, American exceptionalism, you know, tries to impose itself on all other cultures, thinking that you know every culture uh, will fall under American. But uh, French culture is unique. Uh, they don't want to import uh, American America's idea of race or or culture. Similarly, Indian dynamics of caste of religion is unique, uh, and importing. Uh, the, the view of race in America to India would be a bad idea. So the diaspora should be aware of these uh, these challenges and uh, should, uh, you know, rightly, you know, swiftly act on it rather than uh, leaving it to one small diaspora organization to take on all the uh, challenges. Because if not, uh, your kids in school might be, you know, taunted by their caste name tomorrow. Might, they might be called oppressor. Um, and you don't want those taunts uh, because we've had enough taunts already, uh, the dot people and curry people, and uh, we are the, you know, the strange people from the faraway lands. So we don't want new taunts to that by asking us what our caste is, or are we the oppressor or the oppressed? 
you know, you raise an excellent point. And I think uh, the issue around caste is going to be one of the major challenges for our community. And we've already seen it starting to play out, as you alluded to, in the Bay Area. There was, of course, the Cisco case um, where there was a lot of um, what now appears to be false allegations uh, around not just the specific instance of caste-based discrimination there, but about the prevalence of caste-based discrimination in Silicon Valley and broader American society. And now this idea of, you know, pushing at universities, uh, you know, through policies, pushing in the corporate sector, um, trying to get things done at the government level, whether it's local, uh, county or state. Um, it is definitely very concerning. And I think as you rightly alluded to, if we don't unite to address this issue, you know, we're going to be paying a dear price generations down the road for that. Um, so 100% agree with you there. And it's something that we're taking on very seriously at the Hindu American Foundation. And you can visit our website to learn more about some of our initiatives there. Um, so, Akil, as we kind of close, let's close on a positive note after talking a little bit about some of the challenges um, and kind of, you know, Tell us, you know, where we're going to go with this initiative, where this initiative is going to take us now. Uh, we've had a great start to it with uh, the first, um, you know, journal article um, about, uh, you know, U.S.-India relations. We have um, a long way to go, though, um, in correcting the narrative. So talk, talk a little bit about where you see this program going and how you see it impacting uh, U.S.-India relations for the positive. And as a and as a byproduct of that, how that will hopefully positively reflect upon the Indian American and Hindu American diaspora. This is a great start. What we've had, uh, you know, with the U.S. India chapter uh, to keep on the momentum. Uh, I believe we need to uh, work on other initiatives or other sectors and other avenues for cooperation, because the U.S. India relationship, like I said, uh, was at rock bottom. It's just getting started and it can be a rocket ship. It can take off, uh, but we need to hit the right areas for cooperation, whether it's climate change, whether it's vaccines, whether it's more trade or more cultural uh, exchanges. We need to do it right. Uh, you, one cannot just blame the regulatory cholesterol in India and you know, say that we won't do trade with India. We need to make it work, such as the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Uh, that uh, is an economic framework without any trade deal or agreement part of it, but uh, it has a lot of discussion on supply chains, uh, which would uh, work well with India. So tailoring initiatives to uh, bring in both countries would be quite important. And uh, we at Pacific Forum are aware of the challenges of the Cold War era challenge and also of uh, the opportunities uh, that it presents. So uh, I think that's where we'll be headed next. We look at, look into opportunities for collaboration, uh, not just in one uh, sector or avenue, but uh, across this, across spheres. And Akhil, uh, finally, how can people follow your work, um, whether on social media or uh, read some of your articles? You can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's Akhil, A-K-H-I-L underscore also. Uh, at, uh, that's my Twitter handle. You can also add me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Akil underscore analyst. So you can find me there. And uh, all my articles are available online. Uh, and you find a bi-monthly column at the Hill. So you can just Google my name and hit uh, articles. All will be on Google. Well, thank you so much, Akil, for spending some time with us today. I really enjoy the conversation and look forward to strengthening our partnership and having a fresh, unique perspective continue on U.S.-India relationship. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much. I look forward to it as well. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org.